All right, thanks for coming back out tonight. You know, if I was sitting under the balcony, I would, I would want some lights. You guys want some lights there? You guys just kind of look like you're, oh, that's all the good-looking people are sitting back there. <laughs> this may be the only time of the night you want to say amen, so, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned to you uh, Sunday that it was 30 years ago when I rolled in, so I was... 26 at that time, so you can do the math. Um, but I had the most disheartening thing happen to me just a few months ago. We, uh, we have this ministry to, uh, there's a big long name for it, but it's the juvenile jail. In fact, it's where these two guys from Steubenville are going to end up. And we, we have a ministry there. And so uh, what we do is we go play basketball with these guys, and then we, you know, give them the gospel afterwards. And so I was there to give them the gospel. And so you know how the, you know, the bleachers in a gym push back, you know, all up again, you know. And so there's a dude sitting here like this, and I'm standing right there. And so, you know, the game is going on. And uh, so the way that it works for all of you ladies is when you're doing a, a gig like this, the, the guys that are sitting on the sidelines are the, the guys that are going to play next. And so this guy has the audacity to say to me, Hey, old school. <laughs> he said, Old school, you want to be on my team next game? the moon, Alice. Um, that was an old TV show. Uh, and so I, I pulled the dude's arm off and beat him with it. But uh, the reason I tell you that is all afternoon, you know, I, I've, you know, been just thinking about tonight and knowing we're going old school tonight, y'all. Um, I'm going to talk about a subject that, you know, it's like when you go over to someone's house, you know, you have all this stuff that tastes really good, it's really bad for you, you know. That's, uh, that's a lot of what preaching is nowadays. It tastes real good, but it's just really bad for you. And uh, tonight, I don't know how good this will taste, but it's really good for you. Um, the first... Uh, session that we had together on, on Sunday morning, I, I asked the, the question, whatever happened to just going for it? Because everything that I seem to see in Scripture is that once we come to Christ, wow, hello, it's a revolution. Nothing stays the same after that. Cool, all ten of us believe that. <laughs> then, then last night, we... We asked the question, whatever happened to biblical salvation? And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we don't go for it, and we don't go hard for this thing, is because a lot of us in the 21st century that profess to know Christ just actually aren't even saved. And a lot of us that do know Christ, I'm afraid maybe we, we haven't really even comprehended our own salvation. And tonight, it's, it's much the same. Now, I, okay, tomorrow night, I, I plan to get really, really practical. I mean, I hope you'll, you'll come back. Not that tonight isn't, but it, it is certainly more doctrinal. And, uh, and yet I feel like, man, this is the kind of stuff that if you're a, a young man, you're a young woman here, You've got, uh, if the Lord tarries is coming, you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 more years to go. I've I got to tell you, I'm just really concerned that the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight it, isn't going to get talked about. And I hope it gets so deeply embedded in your soul that you can't stop talking about it. Tonight we're going to be talking about whatever happened to the cross Remember that thing? Wow. It, it's, a, it's a foreign object anymore. 
And I think it's important for us to, to never forget, I, I, I feel like every time I preach, I, I, I say this, and I don't even intend to. I did tonight because it's in your notes, okay? But, but don't ever forget that God describes the days that we're living in as perilous. I, I think that most Christians keep forgetting that. And so we think that all of this stuff that we see all around us is all so great, and God says, no, it's not. It's perilous times that we're living in. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, This know also, know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And when you begin to look at what God says are the characteristics of these days, you understand exactly why it is that he uses such a powerful word, perilous. The reason he describes it that way is because biblically, the way that God lays it out in his book, he describes the last days as a time when people have been turned, listen, from the truth unto fables. And I know that this is a church that knows this, but this is why Paul told Timothy, dude, preach the word. And he defines what he means by preaching and preaching the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. People want positive preaching. Reproving and rebuking and exhorting. Two-thirds of it is negative. And we come out of it, but first of all, man, we want to be convicted by the Spirit of God and challenged by the Word of God. And what's happened in the last days is we're not preaching the Word, but we've heaped to ourselves teachers having itching ears. And what 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4 says and they, that is the teachers, shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Do you know what fables are? Stories. Sound familiar? Stories that contain truths, they contain principles. They contain axioms, but let me tell you what they aren't. They aren't the truth. Because you know what the truth is? It is this. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. And yet don't ever miss it, y'all. I got to tell you, I've been really surprised at how many people sat in this church for years and years. Okay, I can't go there. It's crazy. Perilous times turn unto fables from the truth. But not only that, he also describes our time as a time when people have been turned from the faith unto doctrines of devils. If they've been turned from the faith, they must have embraced it at one time, eh? 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And I don't think what he's referring to there is people in the last days are going to be having seances and being a part of satanic cults. I think the doctrines of devils are some of the things we talked about last night. Things that sound really Christian and really spiritual. But when you chip away all of the verbiage, it's not this book. It's not the doctrines of this book. And then also he describes our time as a time when people have been turned from the simplicity in Christ unto another Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be con- corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth 
another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. And i got to tell you, I am blown away at the people who bear with people who are preaching, quite honestly, another Jesus than what is presented in this book. He also describes our time as a time when people have been turned from the hearing of the words of the Lord to hearing the words of men. Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. And the only way that you hear the words of the Lord are is when the truth is propagated. When you preach the word, not tell stories. Stories can, they have a place, no doubt. But when that's the content, we're in trouble, y'all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul said that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. But in the power of God, I'm afraid, y'all, that what's going on all around us right now is going to cause people to stand in the wisdom of men rather than the power of God. Now listen, that's how God describes our time. And, And if you're discerning, you can see that there's all kinds of variables that play into how we actually got there. But in my thinking, biblically, There's one reason that stands above them all, and the way I put it in your notes is this. Though there are many contributing factors, one thing stands above them all. The scarcity in the last days of the preaching of the cross. And the fact is, y'all, in these last days, many people think that they become a Christian... But listen, they've never even been confronted with the reality of the cross. They're invited to come and receive the goodies that Jesus has to offer, but they've never been broken by the reality that the that beaten, bruised, and bleeding man hanging on that cross is hanging there because of their sin. And that man hanging there isn't just a sentimental religious figure. He is the holy, almighty creator, God. People aren't invited to receive a a, a suffering, bleeding, dying Savior that wants to save you from your sin. They're invited to receive a smiling, accommodating, conscience-clearer who wants to make your life better. And, And you know why the preaching of the cross is so rare today? The Bible tells you why. First of all, because the cross brings offense. That's what Galatians 5.11 says. The the cross offends people. Listen, you, you tell 21st century people the reality of why Christ is hanging on that cross is because of your sin, and it is you are responsible. You know what? That's offensive, man. It disturbs people. It scares people. It's, it's, un, it's unsettling. And, and so, don't preach the cross. Let's, let's coax them in with something less offensive. Secondly, the preaching of the cross is rare because the cross isn't relevant. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And listen, again, I don't want to sound like a crotchety, negative old man, but the truth is, y'all, a good number of preachers today are just way too hip, way too cool, way too dialed in and in touch to make people face the reality of the cross. 
Because they don't want to be viewed as an idiot. And listen, when you preach the cross, it is foolishness. It's not seeker-friendly. The cross is old-fashioned, or to put it in the words that we use today, it's just not relevant. And I want to say tonight, the preaching of the cross may not be relevant, but it is the only way that people are redeemed. (laughs) Through coming to the cross. And the third reason that it's so rare today is the cross brings persecution. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12 talks about the persecution that comes part and parcel with the, the cross of Christ. And, and listen, y'all, you know what's happened in the last days? Paul's fear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17 has come to pass. The cross of Christ has been made of none effect. And that's why there are so many people running around in the last days who who claim to know Jesus, but the Jesus that they have has had no effect on their lifestyle. Do you understand that trying to get people to become Christians without facing the reality of the cross is an impossibility? Listen, to, to take the cross out of the message changes the message. And it's no longer the gospel, and it makes the gospel of none effect. And the crazy thing is, is it goes on all around us, and, and nobody seems to even be bothered by it. Paul was absolutely incensed by it in his day. And, and that's why when he, when he writes to the Galatians, oh my goodness, man, he, he peels their hair back, man. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he, he says to, to this church, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. I know that that's what they're saying it is, but it ain't. It's not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And he says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach unto you any of the gospel unto you, then which we have preached unto you. And you know which one that is? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, which is Christ, you know the next word? Crucified. He says, if anybody preaches anything other than Christ crucified, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. And the strength of that statement, y'all, is absolutely unbelievable because what he is really saying is let them go to hell. Whoa! Listen, y'all, when it comes to the the cross, the simple biblical principle is is this. Crosslessness equals powerlessness. The power is in the cross. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, listen, but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. And and here's a key principle I want to make sure you get. I think it's in your notes. That principle is as true on one side of salvation as it is the other. In other words, take the cross out of the proclamation of the gospel, and it's powerless to save. And listen, take the cross out of the Christian life, and we're powerless to get where God wants us to get. Did you know that? Another note I put in, the same cross that is key to our salvation is the key to our sanctification. Did you know that? 
There's a continuing role that God intended for the cross to have in all of the Bible believers in this room. And we're all crazy about making sure that we preach the gospel and the cross to the lost. And I know that we're all about that. Praise God. But I want you to understand, there is a continuing role of the cross that I think a lot of us Bible believers have missed. You ask most Christians how the cross plays into their life And most of them will take you back to Christ's atoning death on the cross. And praise God for that. Yeah, again, I'm I'm all about that. But I'm not so sure that in the 21st century, most Christians live with a daily understanding and a daily relationship with the cross of Christ. Listen, if you were given the gift of eternal life... It's because you came to the cross of Christ, and as we saw last night, you were immersed into his death, and with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But listen, first of all, you had to be confronted with his cross. But if you'll ever come through the the wilderness, as it were, on the other side of that cross and get to where you have actually partaken of the abundant life that the Lord Jesus Christ intended for all of us that received Christ, it is not going to be without the continuing role of the cross in all of our lives. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said that to be his follower, you must take up your cross. You come to his cross. And when he gives you his resurrection power, you take his cross with you. And his cross goes with you for the remainder of your life. And his cross becomes, again, for the remainder of your life. His cross becomes your cross. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10, and again, a verse we looked at last night, Jesus died on the cross to give us life. And we die on his cross to give him life. And his life is being lived through us. But the reality is, listen, if we're ever going to tap into the abundant life, if we're ever going to totally go for what God intended for us to go after in terms of the Christian life, we're not going to get there without hanging on a daily basis on his cross. And I got to tell you, man, When faced with the reality of what it really means, this is where most people in the 21st century tap out. This is where people try to find some more relevant teacher to tell them how to have what they really want to have without the cross. And tonight, I want to take the remainder of our time and to look just to look at what God reveals to us through a guy who got it. And man, I hope God will give you ears to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say as we begin tonight looking at Paul's attitude toward the cross of Christ. And I'd like to ask you to take your Bible, if you would, and let's turn together to The book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6, and verse 14. And I want you to watch what, what Paul says in verse 14. He, he says, But God forbid that I should glory, save or accept, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul's saying? First of all, notice he says, God 
forbid. Do you understand when he says that? He can't think of a stronger way to say this. In other words, may there never, ever, ever be a way that I would ever renounce the truth or, 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 and the power of the gospel because of any glory that I'm wanting to receive from the world or because of any persecution I'm afraid of receiving from the world. There's only one thing that rescued me out of the enslavement to self and from the bondage of the world system and sin and evil that held me within its grasp and almost sent me to hell And it was the cross. And in light of that, Paul says, yeah, there's certainly a lot of things that I could rejoice about, and there's a lot of things that I could glory in, but he says, God forbid that there would ever be anything other than an old, wooden, rugged cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that I ever find myself glorying in. And notice that Paul doesn't say, that he simply gloried in the Lord Jesus Christ, though he most certainly did with everything that was within him. But you see, you got to understand, the reason he's saying that he glories in the cross is that it wasn't the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved us. It was his death. It wasn't the miracles that he performed. It wasn't the great sermons that he preached. It wasn't the great attributes that he possessed. None of that had the ability to wash away our sins. What washed away our sins was the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. As the old hymn used to ask, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And you know, I, I, I get it, man. The history of grace certainly began before it. And certainly goes on after it, but listen, right in the middle stands the cross. And grace is most certainly one of God's most beautiful attributes. And grace, again, was certainly one of God's attributes before the cross. But do you understand, y'all, that without that cross, do you understand that there is no such thing as saving grace? Saving grace required the holy, precious blood of God shed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on that cross. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says that it was God's grace that caused our Lord Jesus Christ to taste death for every man when he suffered the death of the cross, and again, without that cross, in spite of his, his, his wonderful, miraculous, beautiful, and powerful life, do you understand that every single one of us would still be bound in our sins, every single one of us would die in our sins, and every single one of us would split hell wide open. You see, that's why Paul says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I would ever, ever, ever glory in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in the eyes of people, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, was the absolute lowest and most inglorious part of everything that had anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in reality, it is the very power of God unto salvation. I, I, I believe this declaration that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 6 in verse 14 is one of the most incredible, one of the most beautiful and powerful declarations in the entire New Testament. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the verse doesn't stop there. Paul goes on in verse 14 to let us know what the result of glorying solely in the cross actually did in his life. And listen now, this is so key, because the question we've got to make sure that we're asking ourselves tonight is, do I glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ like Paul did? Do I glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ like I should? Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Whosoever will come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I, I get it, man. I know we all know that verse, but the question is, how do you know if you've done that? How do you know if you've actually taken up your cross? Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that I am crucified with Christ. And yeah, I, I get it. We all know that verse. And we all know that this is a positional truth that's true of every person who knows Jesus Christ. And it's a spiritual reality because we've been placed in Christ. But the, the, the question is, how do you know that that's a practical reality in your life. I mean, is it a practical reality that you are crucified with Christ on a daily basis? How do you know? I mean, what are we actually looking for? What are the telltale signs that we've really entered into this death life that Jesus and the Apostle Paul were constantly talking about? And what the Holy Spirit reveals through Paul in Galatians chapter 6 in verse 14, is that there is actually a simple test that you can give yourself to see where you are in relation to Christ's cross. Now, now check this out. You remember that when our Lord died on the cross, the Bible says that he was crucified between two what? Two, okay, two, two thieves. Okay, here's a little Bible trivia for you. Does anybody remember their names? I'll give $500 to anybody that can give me both of them. And that's a pretty safe bet because the Bible doesn't give you their names, right? All it tells us in Mark chapter 15 and verse 27 is that the cross Jesus was crucified on was in the center. And one thief was on his right and the other on his left. And again, that's the way that it happened historically. But what Paul lets us know in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 is that practically speaking, okay, listen now, when the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has been personalized in our lives, when the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has been actualized and we've taken up our cross and His cross has become our cross, in other words, when His Christ's cross actually has its rightful place in the center of our lives. The result is going to be that there will be two thieves that will be crucified in our lives. And check this out. In this case, Paul even tells us their names. Look at verse 14 again. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it comes. By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And what the Spirit of God is letting us know here through Paul is that when Christ's cross has really become our cross, and when the cross of Christ has taken central place in our hearts so that we glory in Christ's cross with Paul, and we glory in His cross alone, that there are two thieves that will be crucified on either side of that cross. One thief is called the world, and the other thief is called self. And, and listen, make sure that you understand that those two things are thieves. Because what they will do is they will rob you of the abundant life that God intends for you to live as a Christian, it will rob you from that. They are thieves. So you know what that means? If you want to know if, if you're, where you need to be spiritually in relationship to the cross, just look on either, out in either direction and see if self is hanging on one side and see if the world is hanging on the other. You say, well, okay, well, what does Paul mean when, when he says that by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world? Okay, I, I, I know this church. I, I know that you, know, you guys are well-versed, and praise God for that. But just so the Spirit of God can take this verse to our hearts, let's just talk a little bit about the world. 
being crucified unto me, as Paul says. What does that really mean? Well, let's remember some of the things the Bible tells us about the world. First of all, the Bible tells us that the world is the whole system of evil that is against God over which Satan is the head. That's the system that Paul calls in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, this present evil world. In that system Paul was talking about, uh, it's that system that he was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 when he said that Satan is the God of this world. And it's that system Jesus was talking about in John chapter 12 and verse 31 when he referred to Satan as the prince of this world. So, first of all, it's the system of evil that's against God over which Satan is the prince or the god or the head. And not only that, the Bible tells us that everything that in, that's in that evil world system breaks down into three basic things. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, here it is, man, the full meal deal, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And just so nobody would ever have any question, John ends by saying that none of these three things that comprise the whole system of evil is of the Father, but is of the world. But not only that, the Bible says that before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the world represented a lifestyle that God said characterized our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 says that we walked according to the course of this world. A course that Satan himself, as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the year, very strategically and deliberately established and led us through. And his goal, his purpose, the design of it all, according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, was to conform us to his system, to mold us into it, and to mold it into us, to get worldliness to be in us, to, be, to get worldliness on us, for worldliness to be part of the fabric of our, our thinking and just be the natural flow of our lifestyle so that it absolutely engulfed us. That's what he's talking about. We walked according to the course of this world. And on top of that, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 26, that it was that system of evil that Satan used as a snare or a trap to take every one of us captive at his will. And the reason that it was such a snare, listen, is because it was in the world, y'all, that we used to find our identity. It was in the world that we used to find our esteem. It was in the world where we found advancement and approval and recognition. And it was that system that drove us. It was our motivation for living. And because it was, man, we sought the things, as 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 talks about, the things that would make us as comfortable as we could be and bring us as much satisfaction and pleasure as we could have and make us look and feel as successful as we could possibly look. And listen, it was that system, y'all, that blinded us to God and almost sent every single one of us to hell. That's the world. And yet, you know what's wild? As evil as it all sounds, it was actually that system that held such an appeal to us. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says that though the world system is the enemy of God in our lost condition, we regarded it as our friend. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says that though it's, it's contrary to God's will and everything that God is, we loved the world along with all of its enticements and allurements called the things of this world. And yet, you know what's unbelievably sad? It's that system that even now that we're saved, and even though by His mercy and grace, he translated us out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. It's that system that still has such a pull on us. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says that it's that, it's that power, it's that force that while our spirits are seeking for the things above, it keeps trying to pull us 
to seek the things to keep us earthbound and keep us strapped down here in what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 calls the temporal realm with the things that we see with our physical eyes in this world system rather than the things in the eternal realm, the things that are out of this world, the things that you can only see through the eyes of faith. But check this out. Paul says that once the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up into the center of his life, it caused the world, the world system that we just spent all of that time reviewing, he says it caused that world system to be crucified unto him. Okay? So now we know what the world is. But what does it mean to come to the place that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is so central in our life that it causes that extremely powerful and dominating system of evil to be crucified unto us? And I love this. You know know what Paul was saying? What he was saying is the cross of Christ has come to the point in my life that it's been so actualized, it's so personalized, so practicalized, so realized that the world had become crucified to him. In other words, it became nothing but a, and this is on your sheet, a despised, bloody, lifeless, cursed thing to him. I ask you tonight, the world and the things of this world, are they to you a despised, bloody, lifeless, cursed thing to you and and because it had been crucified to Paul Paul never gave two flips the rest of his life trying to get the world's approval I, I mean listen Paul understood that since the world took a whip and unmercifully beat the back of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't looking for the world to pat him on the back. And because the world took its hands and nailed the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wasn't looking for the hands of the world to applaud him or for the world to extend the right hand of fellowship to him. And since the world used its mouth to spit in the face of the Lord. Paul wasn't looking for the world to take its mouth and kiss him and laud him. Since the world hated our Lord, Paul wasn't looking for the world to love him. And so he wasn't going to court it. And he wasn't going to flirt with it. Listen, the world's approval was absolutely a dead issue for Paul. It died when the world was crucified unto him. And along with the death of the world's approval came the absurdity and death of the world's wisdom. He no longer concerned himself whatsoever with the world's wisdom. Listen, that pagan Greek culture and philosophical mindset in Paul's day that that thought it was so smart. You understand, it sought to intimidate believers in Christ because of their simple childlike faith. And something I think that we all need to make sure that we understand is that that pagan Greek philosophical mindset is still with us today, times about a thousand. And what is so sad to me is that most Christians today spend more time examining and researching and studying and learning and seeking the world's wisdom than they do the wisdom of God that's revealed in this book. But buddy, when the world 
was crucified unto Paul. He saw the world's wisdom for what it was. He saw it as a bunch of godless, Christless foolishness that was bent on casting doubt and quenching hope and denying certainty. And listen, Paul didn't spend another two seconds of his life jiving with it because he knew that the Lord had already exposed the world's wisdom for what it is and had already brought it down. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-21, through 21, yeah, the, the world listens to the preaching of the cross and to them... It's nothing but a bunch of foolishness and they think we're just a bunch of mindless idiots but unto us who are saved it is the very power of God. But he says that they've got it all reversed and and what he does is he quotes Isaiah 29 and verse 14 where the Lord prophesies, listen, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And listen, you know when that prophecy was fulfilled? You know when the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of the prudent was destroyed and brought to nothing? The first time somebody stood up and preached the fact that the only way we come to God is through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what else? That prophecy is fulfilled every single time you and I open our mouth and tell somebody that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And so Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. And he says, where is the wise... Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, talk about its wisdom, the world's wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of doing what I'm doing right now. To save them that believe. You see that? When when the cross had its rightful place in Paul's life, the world's wisdom right along with the world's approval was nothing but a cold, bloody, lifeless, cursed corpse. And we could add to the list not just the world's wisdom and world's approval, but the world's pursuits. He was no longer concerned with the world's pursuits Listen, once Paul had seen the glory of the cross. You hear that? Once Paul had seen the glory of the cross, all the glory of the things of this world with all of its glitz and all of its glitter and shine and sparkle and pop and whatever else faded into absolute oblivion. They were absolutely nothing. And so Paul no no longer concerned himself with the chariot that he was driving as he was cruising into the city to go get his brains beat out. And and he was no longer concerned about wearing clothes that had somebody else's name on them that you pay three prices for. Once the world was crucified unto him, things that... Rust can corrupt and moths can eat and thieves can break into and steal, as Jesus said in Matthew 6.19. None of those things had an appeal to him anymore. He was dead to them. He saw all that stuff as simply the bait that Satan used to coax him into his snare when he was walking according to the course of this world before he had been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, and Paul had come to the point to where he wasn't going to take the bait anymore. <laughs> you got to love how Spurgeon put it. The world's light is darkness when the sun of righteousness shines from the tree, the cross. What care we for all the kingdoms of the world and the glory thereof when once we see the thorn-crowned Lord? 
There is more glory about one nail of the cross than all the scepters of all kings. Listen, y'all. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 when he said the world is crucified unto me. And since it was, he no longer cared about the world's approval. He no longer cared about the world's wisdom. He no longer cared about the world's pursuits. And one more, he no longer had any desire or concern for the world's pleasures. People in the last days are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But listen... Paul had come to the place when the world had been crucified to him that he didn't want the world to entertain him. He didn't want the world to amuse him. He didn't want the world to pamper him, coddle him, comfort or charm him. He was dead and done with seeking its temporal pleasures. He was seeking the things that Colossians 3, 1 and 2 say are above And he's very careful to tell us at the right hand of God where Psalm 1611, to coin a phrase, says there are pleasures, listen, forevermore. Listen, y'all. That's what it means for the world to be crucified unto you. The world becomes a despised, bloody, cold, lifeless, cursed corpse. And we no longer seek its approval. We no longer seek its wisdom. We no longer seek its pursuits. We no longer seek its pleasures. We no longer seek its anything. It's dead. But remember, Galatians 6.14 says the world is only one of the thieves that's crucified when the cross of Christ has its rightful place at the center of our lives and is our glory. Paul goes on in Galatians 6.14 to talk about the crucifixion of the thief on the other side of Christ's cross. On one side, as we talked about, Paul says, the world is crucified unto me. On the other, he says, and I am crucified unto the world. And you know what he's actually saying here? He says, because of the place the cross of Christ has in my life, the world, listen, the world doesn't view me any differently than I view it. The feeling is mutual. The world no longer recognizes me as part of its system because as John 17, 14 says, I'm no longer of it. In James 4, 4, he says, it no longer sees me as its friend. In John 15, 19, it says, it no longer loves me. It hates me. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, I am made a spectacle unto the world. In other words, those who have the cross in its proper place are what the world uses to make fun of. They make sport of us. We become a spectacle to them. And it gets worse than that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 13 that we become the off-scouring of all things to the world. We become the off-scouring. I I, I really don't know this, ladies. Uh, do, do they have anything other than a self-cleaning oven anymore? Do they still sell Easy Off, the oven cleaner? You guys remember that, though? Remember in the old days, you get all that black crud down in the bottom of your oven that starts smoking every time you're preheating your oven? Remember those days? And so you take that, that, that harsh Easy Off chemical and spray all of that and... And then you get your Brillo pad. I'm sorry, young people, you don't understand any of these words. Easy off, Brillo. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. And so you get in there and you're doing all this and it gets all that, that brownish gray foam. You know what that is? That's off scouring, man. And what do you do with that junk? You ice a cake with it. (laughs) You pour 
Coke in it and have a float. <laughs> Put it in a bowl and use it to dip for chips. <laughs> no, you know what you do with that junk? You dispose of it. You throw it out. It's, it's disgusting. It's gross. It's worthless. It's nasty. Paul says, because of the place of the cross in my life, that's what I am to the world. And I'm glad of it. And believe it or not, it gets even more graphic and gross than that. Paul adds in the same verse, 1 Corinthians 4.13, that along with being the off-scouring of the world, that we are made as the filth of the world. And I don't think I'd be doing a service to you, God, or His Word to try to make what Paul was saying any more tactful and nice than what he meant. What he says, and don't miss this because it must be time to turn the sheet, but don't miss this. What, what he's saying is when the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has its rightful place in our lives, the world considers us that which is left behind when it relieves itself. We're nothing but a pile of filth to the world. Listen, that's what we have to look forward to when the cross takes the center stage in our life. But you see, listen now, this is so important. It's, it's so simple. I, I, maybe you already get it. But because the world is crucified unto you, it doesn't matter what they think. Listen, the only time that it matters to you is when you're not in the right relationship with Christ's cross. Do you remember what John, Jesus said in John 15, 19? He said that the reason that the world hates us is for the simple fact that we are no longer of it. He said in John chapter 7 and verse 7 that it hates us because it hates Him. And the fact is, if it loves you, if the world thinks you're wonderful, it's still a telltale sign that you are still of it. And if you want to know biblically what it means to be of the world, it's defined very specifically in 1 John 4 and verse 5. Paul says, they, or John says, yeah, Paul says in 1 John 4, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 5 says, they are of the world. Therefore, okay, here's how it manifests itself. And he gives us two things. They speak of the world. In other words, they're constantly talking about the world. You know what, y'all? We talk about what's important to us. And people who are constantly talking about the world talk about it because it's important to them. And it's important to them, John says, because they're of it. And number two, the second telltale sign he gives us is the world heareth them. In other words, they still have influence in the world. And, and the point is, if, if you still have influence in the world, not you influence them in terms of your witness, but you influence them in terms of your worldliness, it's because you still love it. Listen. Until the cross of Christ has its rightful place in our life. And until His cross has become our cross. Do you understand, y'all? There is absolutely no possibility of us coming out of Egypt and coming through the wilderness and coming into Canaan. It is an impossibility. 
to live in the fullness of God, what God intended salvation to be. The abundant life that every single one of us want, the only way we get there, y'all, is hanging on a cross. And in conclusion tonight, I, I ask you, what is your relation to the cross of Christ? I know you want to be a part of a church that preaches the cross. Okay, good job, you found it. Keep coming. Stay, because there aren't many places that do it. I'm not asking you if you found a place that preaches the cross and brings people to the cross of Christ when they preach salvation. I'm asking you, what is your relationship on a daily basis to the cross of Christ? Is... The world crucified unto you? And are you crucified to the world? Let, let me ask it another way. Okay, now listen real carefully because I'm almost done. For real, y'all. Is the cross something you look back on as an instrument of death in Christ's life that gave to you the gift of eternal life? That's a cool thing. Yeah, that's good. I'm just asking you tonight is, does that cross have a part in your daily life? Is it, listen, is it the instrument of your death that allows Christ's life to be lived through you. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads as Pastor Jeff comes.